Today on Water Cooler, Australians who vote for a living. Do public servants have a vested interest in supporting parties that want to raise taxes? The murky world of union finance. John Slater tells us what he discovered when he inspected the books. Liberalism or libertarianism? How should liberals respond to the challenges of illegal drugs or licensing drinking establishments? And Fred Paul asked an interesting question. Should we follow some Indonesian states and tax surfers? I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre, and this is The Water Cooler, recorded on the 21st of September 2018. This week I'm coming to you from Perth. Fred Paul, you're in Sydney. Fred, I've been looking this week at, at the number of public servants we have. The, the numbers increased massively. What got me onto this topic was a really good paper uh, by Robert Carling at the Centre for Independent Studies asking this question, do people vote for a living? If your living relies on the government, if you're a public servant or perhaps you're a doctor where you get a lot of your fees from the government, uh, or you know, if you're on welfare, for instance, all your income may come from the government, why would you vote for a party that lowers taxes. I mean, that put your living your living at risk, wouldn't it? I mean, that's just common sense, isn't it, Fred? That's right, mate. I'd, I'd say this is an, another manifestation of the nanny state. You know, people, it's literally a nanny state. People are relying on the government for their, for their well-being or for their income. Um, I'm reminded of a quote that I read recently by the great American uh, economist Thomas Sowell. I, I, I'll have to paraphrase from memory, but it's, it's the trick of modern governments is to convince you that they are the provider of wealth and and um, and and income, when in fact governments have no money. All the money comes from the people, uh, and anyone who believes that they can rely on the government for their for their well being is is being tricked. The money comes from the people, not from the government. Yeah, that, that was a point Robert Menzies made a number of times, that, that the government has no money of its own, contrary to common opinion, uh, and that the only money it has is that which it taxes uh, or borrows on the on behalf of its citizens. You know, every time the government goes out and borrows money, guess what? We're guarantors for that. We have to pay in the end. Exactly. It makes you wonder why. Why would people vote for a living then, Nick? I mean, what are they thinking? Where where are they? Where do they think this is going to end? Obviously, not well. No, out of pure self-interest. There's something called public choice theory, which is uh, what uh, p- people who study uh, the science of government talk about, and and that is the problem that in the end, you know, public servants are supposed to be acting on in our interests, in the interests of the nation. But of course, like all of us, uh, they're, they're strongly influenced in their behaviour by what suits them, and that may be you know, the kind of policies that make their life easier. Or or it may be in this case just that, you know, they, they want a good income. They want governments to keep spending money, at least on public servants. Uh, and Robert Carling makes this point. And, and the, but the, 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 scary, the scary thing is that there's a lot of those people now, right? If you add them all up, Robert Carling reckons you're probably talking about 55% of the population. Well, I, I think you made, a, you made a good point in your piece, um, you know, borrowing from Carling, obviously, but I, um, you said the repressed fury towards conservatism exhibited on the ABC is as much instrumental as ideological. The intolerance of socially conservative views is matched by a less vocalised opposition to fiscal conservatism. In other words, in other words these people who rely on government uh, uh, benevolence um, tend to stick together, um, and it's not good for the country, is it? No, it's right. And, and look, I, I, I fully understand that. I mean, I, I worked for I, most of my career in commercial newspapers, 
And who's the boss in the end? Who decides uh, what the paper goes in? The reader, you know, because you have they're the ones who have to put their their uh, five cents, a little bit more than that, probably five cents when you and I started, but yeah. five <laughs> cents over the counter of that newspaper, right? And if they don't do that, so they're the people, they're your paymasters. Now, in the case of the ABC, the paymasters are the, uh, is the government. It's us, really, but we don't get any choice in it. Like, you, uh, um, like a lot of things these days... Uh, um, Orwellian, uh, Orwellian language is is creeping, you know, into all sorts of aspects of modern life, and I think the phrase "public service" is probably an Orwellian term these days too. And and Carlin goes on to ask some interesting questions about, you know, whether whether um, some of the trends we've got in government these days. So they, you know, the, the real intent of a policy is often disguised. So if you take, say, the Gonski plan under Gillard, massive new spending in schools. Who benefits from that? Are the kids? I, I I tend to think not not so much certainly as the teachers. You know, it's the teachers who get the more money in the door. They can have a higher pupil to teaching ratio. They can work less hours. You know, teachers have got an enormous vested interest in getting more money into public schools beyond the idea of educating kids. So the whole thing gets very confused. I really do think that Carling's onto something here, and I recommend that paper. But the numbers, Fred, I mean... Have you any idea how many extra public servants we put on since the financial crisis? It's scary. 250,000, quarter of a million. What do they do? <laughs> Every encounter with a bureaucracy these days is uh, characterised by, you know, frustration and, um, and, you know, and procedural obstruction. Also, we've got to be careful here not, I mean, you know, closer ears of your public servant. We're not condemning public servants look we need them we demand them i mean if you think so border security or or nurses doctors sure we do need public servants what i'm interested in is more the administration behind that and and those numbers grow year after year but with banks for instance banks have reduced numbers because they've got you know computer technology yeah. we all do our phone on our banking on the phone these days They've actually reduced their staff numbers, so why can't government do the same? Yeah, good point. Anyway, I think we'll come back to that, that topic later and, um, and, and possibly let's see if we can get Robert Carling in next week, shall we, to talk about it, Fred? That'd be great, yes. With me in Canberra is John Slater, who authored the Unions Inc. report. John, we set out, I think, when we started, our aim was to really uh, just just explain the structure and purpose of the modern union and how it differs from what people might conceive a traditional union might just might be like could you explain what that difference is well i suppose traditionally people think of unions as really really an organization where it's you know representing workers interests in the workplace um and you know, as an advocate for workers not not just in terms of you know health and safety but wages, general working conditions, and the like. Um, and it's that really that employee advocate um, role is what really typifies how people think of trade unions. But what our research has revealed is that, you know, trade unions do retain some semblance of that employee advocate role, but they've really evolved to become far more sophisticated and, I guess, broad-based organisations. And that employee advocate role is one certainly one element of what they do but they are also in many ways the operators of commercial businesses um their campaigning outfits as we as we know quite well um and they and they often basically um 
they're, they're quite sophisticated organizations, which in many ways, um, depending on which angle you're looking at, could look like, you know, an, an insurance broker. Um, it could look like, a, you know, work health and safety training company. Um, and what we found is as the, their membership rates have been in, you know, steep and steady decline now for quite a few decades. Um, as, the, as that process has occurred, unions have branched out into all these other sorts of ventures, which far from just shoring up um, their, their finances, it's actually seen their finances grow from strength to strength. Yeah, I think what worries, what worries me about this, you know, in the, on the one hand, I mean, when one likes to see entrepreneurialism, uh, but I think there seems to me uh, a deep conflict of interest. Unions uh, negotiating uh, enterprise bargaining agreements and then part of that enterprise bargaining agreement will be that uh, workers must compulsory purchase uh, a certain insurance scheme or that the employer must uh, uh, buy some training scheme. That's where I think the the conflict of interest comes in and it's just not acknowledged, is it? Well, that's absolutely right, Nick. Um, And let's be clear, it's a huge huge conflict and what it means for the bargaining representative or the bargaining agent who is negotiating the paying conditions for a particular workforce is they they're in a position where they can use that role to financially enrich the union um and it's quite difficult to say that if they are doing that and doing that very successfully that they're acting with undivided loyalty to the interests of the workforce they're representing now it's it's trust law 101 that if you were the executor of, of a will and you used your role as the executor to reap private profits, um, you know, the courts of equity have recognised that there is something wrong there um, for several hundred years. And the law has always emphasised that it's not just the act of doing wrong, but it's the act of being seen to do wrong that corrodes confidence in the, I guess, the role of a trustee. Um, and in this case, it's exactly the same. It it undermines and delegitimizes confidence in unions who negotiate the paying conditions still of an e- enormous share of the workforce. Upwards of more than 30% of the workforce are on union-negotiated collective agreements. And so it corrodes public trust in their capacity to do that with pure fidelity to workers if they, at the same time, are reaping enormous, enormous um, revenue from the, I, the the content of the agreements they're responsible for negotiating. There's another aspect that grates with me, and that's uh, competition or lack of competition policy. I mean, it always seems to me that when you have a truly competitive market, the winner is always the consumer. Yeah, I've, I completely agree with that. Um, and you're right, because it means that consumer choice has no role to play. Um, and so the the Trade Union Royal Commission now three years ago stumbled upon this issue and they interviewed a, a whole lot of managers. There was one in particular from who operated a crane business and he said that he was able to identify just by doing a quick Google search comparable income protection insurance policies um, that delivered significantly better value um, for about half the price as the one that was included in the EBA that the union was trying to um, basically coerce him into signing up to, and so um, at first blush, a lot of these a lot of these products are you know enormously enormously expensive and by extension enormously profitable, um, but 
that you know that's that's almost immaterial because the their their consumer base it's not a, it's not a voluntary transaction so you see you see all the characteristics of of a protected market where it means you know you have these large incumbents um, who aren't penalized for being wasteful and for providing inferior pro- um, value for money it certainly caused uh, a lot of interest the report you've done i mean i can't remember a report we've done at least recently uh, that had so much organic uh, support if you like you know we didn't and it just took off, didn't it? And 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 that I think indicates that this is a topic of broad concern and one possibly that uh, the government might seek to campaign on. Oh, definitely, um, because I think a lot of our findings just flew in the face of public public perception. You know, public perception is that trade unions have been on a downward slope in Australia. But what we found is, well, they haven't just declined, but they've changed. And the demographics of the people that are in unions now um, are well-paid people who are in public employment generally. They're more educated. They're older. um, They earn much better salaries than the average person. And also, I think quite importantly, they're in forms of employment that are basically sheltered from globalisation. And so they're the sort of workforces that have the the least to lose from a more rigid and a more inflexible industrial relations system. And I think that that's quite instructive if you look at the ACTU's Change the Rules campaign, um, that, you know, the unionised workforces are really going to be shielded from the the real burden of that. Um, and it's, it's actually, in many ways, it's going to be the sort of workers who unions used to represent, but as we found, certainly don't anymore, that are going to suffer. People who are in insecure work, who are, for example, still working in a manufacturing type based job, or you know the sort of the sort of job where you're producing something which can be purchased on a global market? Perhaps it would be worthwhile explaining uh, your methodology, how you how you found out what you did, which possibly explains why this has taken so long uh, to become part of the public discussion. So the the registered organisation commission, which is one of the sort of along with the ABCC is one of the sort of key legacies of the Trade Union Royal Commission um, was established at the end of 2016. And the purpose of the Registered Organisations Commission was a a kind of a purpose-built regulator um, to hold not only trade unions but employer associations to account to make sure they adhere to certain standards of governance, of transparency and, you know, financial probity and accountability. And so, as a in the course of the um, registered organisations commission being established, all tra- all registered trade unions have had to make available a whole raft of financial reports that they would previously would have just been sitting in the filing cabinet gathering dust. And so, what this has enabled us to do is go right back to sort of two thousand and two, two thousand and three, and year by year break down. What, what was the financial position like? But more importantly, how has it changed over time? And that's allowed us to map out this trajectory over a 14 to 15 year period of, you know, what's, what's changed, which unions have done well. And, you know, the, and then superimpose that alongside membership decline and, and you know, two, two very contrary stories, which has been really, really instructive for our research going forward. Yeah, I mean... Um I think this is this. We need to recognise this, don't we? That this, I think, in the long term, uh, will prove to be one of uh, the Abbott government's great reforms. Maybe, arguably, uh, even more important than re-establishing the ABCC. That they've, they've the registered organisations commission 
imposes transparency for the first time and we can simply see what's going on. And, and that surely has got to be in everybody's interest, the members, uh, the public, possibly even the unions themselves. That That's right, Nick. And I think it's it's really important to underline here that the reason why trade unions should be held to a fairly high degree of scrutiny and have to abide by a quite sort of rigorous transparency requirements is because trade unions are different from your local um, Lions Club or your local RSL because trade unions have significant and expansive influence over the industrial relations system. And the industrial relations system affects the entire country and it affects, um, you know, not only people's pay packets directly, but it's really one of the kind of key, you know, um, pieces of economic policymaking machinery, um, which, which, you know, touches and affects the lives of Australians every day. So if trade unions, um, by dint of legislation, um, are going to have basically locked in a central role in industrial relations. They're going to be, you know, one of the key actors. Um, just not only not only by assumption, but they're but they're legislatively locked into that role. Um, it's in everybody's interests to see, you know, how do trade unions operate? Um, where do they make their money? Um, and you know, how does this relate to the interests of their members? Because it's a it's it's not only just about their members, but it's about the public interest. Um, is you know definitely staked in what the registered organisation commission is doing. Uh, what's next on the uh, so what comes next in the Union Inc. Union Inc. series? So we're in the process of working out a model to figure out um, using again that registered organisations commission data. You know had if unions did have to pay tax, not on their, their membership revenue necessarily, but on particularly, you know, the, the, all the commercial property, um, the commercial ventures, all, all of the things where what they're doing is basically mimicking a commercial business, um, how much tax would they have had to have paid? Um, and it's salient because unions have been at the forefront of opposing the company tax cut package um, to lower the company tax rate to 25% for all businesses. Unions were the most among the most ardent critics of that. Um, and unions as well um, make a lot of noise about corporate tax avoidance, multinational corporate tax avoidance. Um, but, you know, our thinking is if unions are replicating what, you know, private enterprises are doing in a free and open market, if they're basically doing the same thing, um, they should play by a, on a level regulatory playing field um, and a big part of that is, of course, got to be taxation because taxation has a ef- significant effect on any entity's um, finances. Well, particularly since the unions have been at the forefront of the movement to ensure that corporates like banks pay their fair share of tax. Uh, I mean, if, if that's true for the banks, then it should be true for them. That's right. And I'm really looking forward to being able to sort of Put some put some flesh on the bones here, and really see how much untaxed commercial revenue unions have been able to generate over the past fourteen years. And um, we're already very confident this is going to expose a, a glaring hypocrisy and a, and a really rank double standard that I think that we should be we should be out talking about and you know campaigning on. Well, I, I thought that the the proof you're on the right track was when I read Sally McManus's. A piece in the Guardian uh, criticising uh, you and the Menzies Research Centre for their for their uh, report. I thought, well, we've hit the spot there. But uh, unfortunately, the Guardian. I don't think they. You, you went to them and asked for a right reply, didn't you? 
I did. I contacted their opinion editor and I and I said, look, I'm very happy to write an even-handed piece that's really just setting out the findings of our of our research and you know why is this relevant not just to political junkies but to the average the average person right who you know again their their prospects in the labor market are affected by the industrial relations system so so very i think it's you know it's it's important to everyone um and i and i was you know pretty swiftly swiftly knocked back but going back to sally's piece um, she she said she gave us a D minus for research, but if uh, I looked through quite carefully, and there wasn't a substantive rebuttal to any point that we raised in our report, which which says to me that we frustrated her terribly, but she hasn't been able to find any holes, which is to my mind is you know it's good vindication that we we yeah did our did our research properly. Yeah, well, no no uh, no opinion piece for you in the Guardian. Well, you lose you win some, you lose some. Uh, John, but uh, you've had plenty of coverage elsewhere. Thanks very much. We'll talk to you about this again. Great. Thanks very much, Nick. And now to a a philosophical dilemma, uh, which goes to the heart of what's the difference between being a liberal and a libertarian. Uh, Fred, you've been looking at this, haven't you, in relation to the idea of, uh, of, of illegal drug festivals. It's a tragic reason to be looking at it. There was a music festival in Sydney last weekend, uh, the, the Daily Telegraph described it as a not a music festival where people take drugs, but a drug festival where people listen to music. And the, the, the Telegraph had a very good point. You know, this is this is the kind of music that does attract people who are, you know, particularly inebriated. And um, the, the, the there were two tragic deaths at this, and it, it has prompted the state government to respond because, you know, we live in an age, like a lot of ages really, we, we live at a time when um, people hear these sort of incidents and think, well, the government has to do something. So when I heard that, I, I realised Gladys Berejiklian is in an awfully difficult position in this. Um, she's been actually described as illiberal in her response when she said uh, her government has a, um, a zero-tolerance attitude towards drugs, and she set up an expert panel to um, come up with some solutions. But I, I looked at this and I thought, well, what would John Stuart Mill say about this? And it's amazing how prescient he was all those years ago, over 100 years ago, um, in his attitude towards uh, self-destructive behaviour and the uh, attitude of society at large. And he's very clear about it. He says... He says that um, enforcing moral standards uh, never works because people who are independent thinking, people who are you know often quite intelligent, will defy attempts to impose standards of behaviour on them. Self-destructive behaviour can never be isolated. A person is not merely self-destructive. He or she affects the people around them, family and friends, uh, he or she will diminish um, his or her ability to contribute productively to society and also could act as a very poor role model. Now, it's interesting what Mill says after that. He says the inconvenience of this is um, is something that society can afford to bear for the sake of the greater good of human freedom. And the reason he says that is that every society has an opportunity to mould each new generation. And implicitly what he's saying is we get the deviance we deserve. So if if we are a overly libertine society, um, 
then young people will grow up thinking that such behaviour is acceptable. And indeed it is these days. Drugs are, are, are extraordinarily acceptable at all levels of society these days. And that is a reflection of our collective values. And Mill, Mill, um, Mill seems to be saying implicitly that if you oppose this kind of self-destructive behaviour, then what are you doing to stop it? It's not the government's role. Yeah, it's easy for John Stuart Mill to do it in the abstract. But I think in, in real life, in, in, in real civic society and politics, it's a very, very subtle distinction between, you know, repressing in a sort of authoritarian way and, and allowing people freedom when it comes to these issues. In Perth, I, I've, uh, I've been caught up with a, a great guy who's an ex-copper, uh, retired now, and when he picked me up at the airport, there were two empty beer cans sitting there, you know, just next to his car. So some some idiot left them there, obviously, last night. And he was just, he said, look, we've got to do something about this. He said, why can't we go back to the days when we had drunken disorderly laws? You know, if somebody was messy on the streets, the cops could uh, pick him up and, and let him cool down in the cells overnight. I mean, we, we dropped that in the 70s and, and early 80s for sort of, you know, libertarian reasons or, or reasons of, uh, of uh, whatever it was. But it seems to me we've got to have those clear markers, haven't we? I mean, we do it with drink driving, right? I mean, you're not free to drive around pissed, are you, in the car? I don't think Mill is. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I, I don't think Mill is suggesting that um, we should allow, you know, um, antisocial behaviour to flourish. Um, and I wouldn't. I would never suggest that either. And and it, to agree with you to a point, Mill wasn't dealing with a society that is as narcissistic as ours. I mean, our a lot of people these days think they have a right to be wasted in public. And be loud and obnoxious, and that I, I, Mill would never agree with that, and, and no right-thinking person would. I mean, you can't infringe on the the rights of other people to enjoy, uh, you know, public spaces in in a kind of peaceful way. A few years ago, you probably remember in New South Wales, the licensing hours in Kings Cross became an enormous issue with sort of young libertarians, and they thought this was the most important issue of freedom there was. The fact that the the Berejiklian government was uh, was uh, it might have been bad. I, I, I probably was bad. Yeah, it was putting restrictions on drinking hours. That, that, you know, and I think it was you couldn't drink after one o'clock or something. But you know, it just seemed to me that it, yeah, it may be frustrating for a young person out on a Saturday night, but it is hardly the greatest issue of freedom that we have to face. Not when we've got you know cartoonists being persecuted and goodness knows what else. Well, to quote to quote the the, the great um, you know hip hop band of the nineties, the Beastie Boys, you've got to fight for your right to party, Nick. <laughs> Interestingly, in Perth, uh, the, the there was a headline yesterday that the government wants to outlaw whinging. Uh, which I think is a fantastic idea. I mean, I'm a pom, right? But I'm all for outlawing whinging. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but the point was it was about licensing hours at, um, I think it was Subiaco. Uh, and uh, and it, was it Northbridge? You'd know, you're a local. Northbridge. But, Northbridge, Northbridge yeah. yeah. So they're saying, look, if you move into an area that's already got, um, uh, you know, pubs and things, you've just got to put up with it. You know, that that's it. You've moved in knowing it's, it's there are licensed premises and there are consequences. You can't then later complain. You know, you have to put up with the rules. And I think that's that's a, a sensible thing. But it's a difficult balance Absolutely. all the way through. They should, they, should sit, they should sit, look on the bright side. People are paying good money to listen to that music and they get to listen to it in their lounge room for free. So <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And um, 
Yeah. Just to round off this segment, Fred, the, the issue of e-cigarettes, the government or, or, or Greg, Greg Hunt, the, the health minister who was uh, strongly opposed to the licensing of the sale of e-cigarettes, uh, that's, you know, these electron, the vaping, uh, but more, more I think the point here was the e-ones, which is where yep. they, you have a little battery that heats the tobacco, but it doesn't burn. Uh, and he's, he's uh, I think, after a great um, uh, amount of pressure from some of his colleagues and from uh, other Liberals who, who who don't see the logic in that, they're now announcing an inquiry. It seems to me a good thing, don't you think? Absolutely. I, one of the benefits of e-cigarettes is that you don't actually need to smoke a whole cigarette. So nobody, if e-cigarettes were more um, were more widely used... Office workers wouldn't need to duck out for 15 minutes and lose all that productivity. You know, you could just, if you feel the need for a nicotine hit, which smokers do, then you can even surreptitiously do one um, in an office space without anyone knowing. Yeah, and and the health aspect too. I mean, all the evidence, we don't have the complete evidence, but all the evidence suggests so far that they are considerably safer uh, than a conventional cigarette. And and in Britain, that's what the... uh, the, the, the government's official line, you know, so they see it as a way of getting people off hard cigarettes, uh, and that to me seems to be a valid reason. We 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 put up the price of cigarettes, so we now have the most expensive cigarettes in the world, I gather, uh, and, and that has, I, I guess, deterred smoking to an extent. But it's not making an impact now, is it? Well, smoking has actually gone up. Smoking smoking rates have actually gone up. So yeah, you're dead right. I mean, if if yeah, and it just, it just seems nonsense that you license. You're allowed to sell the most dangerous form of nicotine, but you are not allowed to sell a safer form. Uh, it just makes no sense. Does it? So full marks for common sense to Greg Hunt for that one. So finally, some holiday stories. Fred, you've just returned from a uh, a trip to Indonesia, engaging your your uh, your favourite pastime, or, or should I say, second favourite pastime, surfing. <laughs> but uh, uh, and you came across <laughs> an interesting uh, revenue raising exercise in uh, Sumatra. Tell us about it. Yes, I've just come back from the Mentawai Islands, uh, which is a chain of islands off Sumatra. It's the world's best collection of uh, world class surf breaks, and uh, it's become a quite a mecca for surfers from all around the world. And recently, the local government has been charging surfers $100 to visit the area. And when you pay your $100, you get a wristband. And if the cops um, who patrol the water out there um, in their boats um, see you in the water without a wristband... Um, well, then you're then you're subject to the wrath of the uh, notoriously harsh Indonesian penal system, um, which uh, surfers, I've got to say, are not unfamiliar with. So anyway, I didn't pay it. I did. I didn't pay it, mate. I'm happy to say, uh, as a uh, an an opponent of big government, I spent my money on local businesses instead. I mean, taxes like this in a country like Indonesia. Um, are prone to be misused by, you know, to disappear um, into the pockets of whichever bureaucrats are, are, are collecting them. Put aside what they do with the taxes, you're right that there is this corruption in, in widespread in Indonesia on some of these little nuisance taxes. Uh, first of all, Fred, I'm, I'm, I'm not against uh, imprisoning surfers. I think that's probably a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, you're sitting there looking out to see it, the beautiful view, and it's spoilt by a couple of idiots on boards. But, you know, I don't, anyway, but to, to get serious about this, this, this one for a moment, um, there's a jurisdictional problem, I think, in Australia. You, you, I think you're more across this than I am, but as I understand it, uh, the state government uh, is, is, is territory ends at the shoreline uh, and then it becomes, uh, you know, federal government territory. So if there's a tax to be raised out at sea, then it should be the federal government's uh, sovereignty, shouldn't it? Have I got that well, one right? <laughs> state state governments um, administer the inshore waters. Um, I'm, I'm, I can't remember. I think it's about three kilometres to sea, and then it becomes a federal. You never get out further than that, do you? No, the <laughs> waves that. don't break out that far. Um, right, so, so that's it's, settled that. De- definitely an inshore, um, in- inshore thing. And I, I've got to say, this this tax, this Indonesian tax, was tried in the sixties by Randwick Council in in Sydney, and it failed dismally because um, people refused to uh, to pay it and adhere to it. Yeah, well, you wouldn't like to be the guy who has to go around and collect it, would you? You know, you'd rather be a parking inspector, <laughs> would you? But <laughs> but let's. Uh, I'm against against my natural instincts. I'm going to argue for a new tax now. So we, it, we, we're talking about a finite resource here. There's only so much, so many breaks that that you can surf, and you do you get a problem of congestion, don't you? You you, you come across this every day, don't you? People getting in people's way. That's right. Dropping it, in. It's one. It's one of the biggest. It's one exactly. It's one of the. It's probably the biggest problem in surfing is overcrowding of breaks, especially in urban areas. And and increasingly, the idyllic breaks in remote places are becoming crowded as well. There was a place in Fiji uh, that throughout the 90s and early 2000s was owned by a resort. And if unless you stayed at his resort, you could not surf this wave. Now, that, that rule has since been abandoned and anyone who wants to who can get there can surf it and i as a as a you know an ordinary working man who doesn't have a lot of money and and isn't doesn't doesn't sort of uh favor attitudes of elitism then i i'd suggest that the ocean belongs to everyone and no matter how rich or poor you are. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You, you, Fred, this is a vested interest argument from a a, a, a surf app. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if there, what do we do if there's a, if there is a, a scarce resource? Uh, what's the best way of dealing with dividing up who uses it? I suppose at the moment you use your fists, don't you, or something like that, or bang them with a board. But what about we just put a price on it? So then you know, let the price, the market will decide who surfs and who doesn't, right? Oh, Would that, is that fair? You're killing me, Nick, because you know, as a as an advocate of, of free market and enterprise, I, I you know it's difficult for me to disagree. But you know, the the old surfer hippie in me says, no, mate, the the ocean belongs to everyone, and let's just live peaceably um, and get along with each other. Yeah, I think that's probably the right response. Look, I was going to go on and 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 show my prejudice on the issue of surfers and welfare and all that, but no, we won't. We'll stop there. I think. <laughs> We'll stop there. <laughs> uh, we, we should get Tony Abbott on, in on this conversation. He's probably got some... Got look, some we should. And look, we should be careful, right? There's a by-election in Wentworth. Let's not raise the prospect of a, a surf tax. But, um, <laughs> oh, that's, that's the last thing I need. I live in Wentworth. It's... Uh, you know, and I hate to have to vote against a Liberal proposing a, uh, proposing a surf tax, but... No, all right. So I think we'll agree on this one in the end. We, we okay. uh, For different okay. reasons, but we are opposed to new taxes. We... Please don't follow Indonesia. 
Okay. Uh, but yeah, look, okay. that, that that's great. And these are podcasts are now on iTunes, Fred, uh, uh, and uh, and and we're getting some great feedback. We'd we'd encourage more, I think. I'd love we? to love to get some feedback. Our our contact details are on our website. But please subscribe to us on iTunes, and um, and let us know what you think and uh, and of any topics you want us to talk about. Okay, well, thanks, Fred. Uh, it's been a, another fun half hour, and uh, we'll, we'll talk again next week on uh, the water cooler.